Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. For months now, family, friends, and people following the case have been urging the public to share Kylan and Crystal's story and reach out to anyone who may have been in Moab in mid-August to share photos or videos that could hold the clues that are needed to solve this horrific crime. But of course, we never know who has sent anything in and what photos or videos have surfaced until now. Jason Jensen confirmed that not only have him and Sean Paul obtained drone footage that was taken at the wedding, which took place at Whispering Oaks, less than half a mile away from where the murders took place, but he has already viewed the footage. In the search regards, I use orbital satellites and see how close I can get in on, you know, real events. A missing person, what happened? Are they, you know, is that... And you have to be so lucky. It has to be no clouds. The bird has to be in the right spot in its orbit. You're listening to Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. We previously learned of three guns that were stolen in Colorado, and since then found out from Sean Paul that he actually knew the guy who the guns were stolen from. It was a friend of his. Well, the 9mm gun that was stolen among the three has been ruled out as the murder weapon in this case. It really has been excluded. Early, uh, you know, About a month or two ago, we brought up the question about three stolen guns. One happened to be a Turkish uh, Sarsimaz 9mm out of Cortez, Colorado, and I went and bought uh, a SAR myself uh, to do ballistics, and I sent the, the spent round and a couple of shell casings to the Grand County Sheriff's Office so they can do ballistic comparison with the actual crime scene uh, evidence, and they ruled that gun out. So it's not going to be that stolen gun, even though it was not the same gun as, as the stolen one, ballistically, they're going to be comparable because the riflings inside the barrel of any gun will be compatible with the other guns of the same make and model. So we know that the pattern of the SARS-MAS that I used had an alternating pattern, uh, a total of uh, what was it, um, eight, I think 16 riflings, uh, a wide, narrow, wide, narrow pattern all the way around the barrel. And uh, Grand County said that that didn't match up with the crime scene evidence. So, you know, we don't know if it's uh, if it's more compatible with a, like a Smith & Wesson or, or a Ruger or some other brand, but we at least know that it's not going to be a 
Sarsilmaz or an SAR. We've heard from many family members of both Kylan and Crystal, and they've all said the same thing. They're not getting any information from law enforcement. When you send information into the Grand County Sheriff's Office, what's your take on this? Do you feel that they're diligently working on this case despite the lack of updates the family is receiving? One of the things that I see is the most important fact why information is not shared so easily with the Grand County Sheriff's Office and uh, you know the family at this point is actually twofold. Number one, the FBI is, is handling all the forensics right now. So they don't even know what's going on because the FBI would have to inform them. And they're not gonna be that you know leaky source that's gonna give that information out without the blessings of the FBI. The second thing that I see is that really, probably the biggest problem here with the Kylan and Crystal case is the fact that there's such a firestorm of activity with with you know these online web sleuthers, they they're from all around the world. But everyone seems to think that if there's a kernel about this individual may or may not have been in the mountain, all of a sudden you know 50 people to 50,000 people reach out on social media and want to talk to the guy. They're not going to give out any information if they think that it's going to just be an internet mob going after somebody because they can't trust whether or not that that information is safe to share or not. Do you know if the FBI created a profile of who potentially you should be looking for in this case? That, that information hasn't been shared with us. But I would imagine, given the, the circumstances, uh, they probably have gone to a behavioral analysis unit to get a profile. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I got to tell you, the FBI did a pretty damn thorough profile sheet with me. It was 10, 12 pages long of a profile sheet that I sat down with the FBI. You know, they're like, because we don't have any solid leads, we need to do this profile aspect. And I was pretty impressed with some of the things that came up and that we talked about and that really might have given them some insight on what the girls were like, you know. What led you to believe that the creepy guy may have been at the campsite earlier than the dates we had previously thought? As far as... Uh our belief about the, the the creeper, the bad guy, it's really just kind of like deductive reasoning, given the fact that um, Kylan and Crystal didn't have a phone that was activated. They would only use their device on Wi-Fi when they were at work or when they were at the library or something like that coffee shop where they had a Wi-Fi that they could connect to. So they can make a Wi-Fi phone or they could receive data, uh, send messages through Wi-Fi. They had no such thing when they were up in the mountain. They didn't have any Wi-Fi. So if they conveyed via their phone or in person about the bad guy, you know, coming back with clothes and, and more provisions and things like that, which they did tell, it's not because they text that information, it's because they actually saw 
the guy. So we do know that through the th throughout the day of the 13th, Kylan and Crystal were in town. They, you know, when they went to Woody's Tavern, they went to a friend's house after that. They, you know, were, were at work during the day and things like that. If they saw Creeper Guy come back, it wasn't on the 13th. So that means we know that they saw him, they interacted with him, they observed him. And at some point he came creeping through their camp that didn't happen on the 13th. That happened before they left the 13th in the morning to town. His creepy activities likely happened in the evening of the 12th or maybe even the evening of the 11th. There had to be enough time span that this information from Kylan and Crystal happened while in town and they had a chance to go back or you know back and forth to see all these different things that happened. Like for instance, when he gave them trouble and they started worrying about the guy and then they see him leave and they think, oh, we're safe. And he comes back with food and clothing that happened over a period of time and not all in one day because this had to happen. They had to get familiar with him. They saw this activity and thought, oh, we got to move. Right. So it means that this because they didn't have a phone, this information where they exchanged back and forth to their friends happened over a period of time when they're back down the mountain. So we believe like the activities about the creeper guy happened on the 12th. Maybe the howling from the from the tent was a day before or something like that. So he likely arrived on the 10th or the 11th. This thing with the creeping through the camp was like the 12th. And then they were warned not to go back to camp on the 13th but they didn't want their their tent ransacked because the guy went through their camp the, the day before. That's why they went back. So we believe the timeline is three or four days rather than something like over a 24 hour window. The satellite images have been a bit of a roller coaster. We've been very hopeful that they could help solve this case and identify a car, or better yet, the killer. But it seems every time we get our hopes up that there may be an image from the relevant dates, it turns out that that's not the case. What is the status of obtaining any satellite images that may help solve these murders? We haven't found anything yet. And uh, that's not, you know, to rule it out conclusively that we never will but we haven't been uh, provided anything yet. We had a close, like a close outcome with this uh, Mark McGarry that was working with some stuff. But unfortunately, it's a very slow, time consuming process. And somebody, not me, had given him a coordinates and it was the wrong coordinates. It was to yellow circle campground, about you know 20 miles away and he had a good image and it was the wrong location. So it's like, oh, geez. And, and he had that information available the day before he went on a YouTube channel, the All-American Dream Chaser. And he had to withhold from sharing that information because it was the wrong location. So does he have the right coordinates now? Is he going to go back and see if he can obtain new images? Oh yeah, because that information was shared with 
me before they went online. And just from what the image depicted, I'm like, oh, no, no, that's got to be the wrong location. You know, you had all these pickup trucks and trailers and everything. It's like, well, we know from the crime scene that was not the description of, of where Kylan and, and uh, Crystal were camping. So it was either the wrong date or the wrong location. So I asked those two questions and I learned what coordinate he was provided. And I could tell from just looking at it, it was different than, from the one that I'm familiar with. So I ran it into the system and it showed a different location. It's like, oh, Mark, no, don't go online and talk about this. You're going to give bad information out there and it's going to have everybody chasing down blue pickup trucks. So <laughs> it had nothing to do with the this crime. So he had to go in uh, uh, on the show and talk about his process and procedure rather than the outcome, unfortunately. We hope that eventually we'll get through this whole difficult uh, mathematical, you know, there's a whole different process that he has to go through to get there software and this and that and i mean they, they even have software they can see the the surface through clouds which i find is amazing but you know it takes time it takes money and sadly enough uh he already went through this trial and error with the using the wrong location so again that just kind of re-emphasizes the dangers that we have when you're dealing with web sleuths web sleuthers out there well intended but if they get bad information or collect bad information, they're going to get a bad outcome. And that's what Mark McGarry was working with, was bad information provided to him by a web sleuther that didn't know the actual location. They thought they had the, the true coordinates, you know, the, the right longitude and latitude, but they didn't. And, you know, and that's the risk that you take when you're working with third-hand information, going through a third or fourth, you know, uh, person, you know, you run the risk of information coming out incorrectly. As luck would have it, as we were working on this episode, Mark McGarry happened to reach out to us. So we asked him what he could do to help and whether or not he had images for August 10th, 11th, and the 12th. In the search regards, I use orbital satellites and see how close I can get in on, you know, real events, a missing person, what happened, are they, you know, is that, and you have to be so lucky. It has to be no clouds. The bird has to be in the right spot in its orbit. And, uh, you know, how you can, how you can work out the capture through thing. But in, for instance, in this kooky uh, Schulte-Turner case, the whole the whole thing hinged on who was there, who was up in the campsite. So it turned out that there really wasn't a really good capture to that very day. But I'm actually still looking, and of all the kooky stuff there, I have some chemistry buddies in 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 Russia. And there may be a Russian orbital bird with some images that are not available in America. So I asked them to, to have a look at the at the Schulte-Turner site and see if anything's available on the Russian birds. Um, 
you know, I don't know if there if they can reach any or or um, happen. But these satellites look down at us and capture things that are real to the ground below. Mark experienced a personal tragedy within his family. That's what initially got him interested in satellite images. And previously, he took interest in the Daybell Vallow case and began searching for any images that could potentially help solve that case. Back in 2019, I was writing to the Rexburg sheriff explaining that there were some orbital images to Rexburg exactly on the dates of the children's disappearance. And I explained that there might be uh, other images that were beyond my resource. And in fact, one was found and widely publicized. Uh, the, the, the image looking down at the Daybell's barnyard. So I'm pretty sure I was the motivating factor in finding that. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't the one who sourced that image, but using these images for missing people is real and it's it's not it's not certain some people think oh it's like a cell phone no this is a bird nine feet in diameter moving through a 500 mile up it's 500 miles above the earth flying at 16,000 miles an hour and what it captures to the earth's surface is it, it covers the whole Earth's face in four days. So it's really moving. And then you have to go and be able to search all the metadata effectively. So it's kind of a kooky skill. And, you know, uh, the reason I got interested is I had lost a nephew. And I wanted better ways to search for him after they found him and it was an off-road thing it was a pickup accident you know on on snow and the thing flipped over and and uh, but it was it was sad to me and i determined at that time i was going to improve my skills in looking because what about other people you know um and when you get to that place it's such a, a difficult unknown your imagination goes well what happened who was involved and things like that. And so that's one reason I really tuned up my skills for it. When you have someone you love and you care about who's missing, all these things come through your mind about what could have happened, who could have been involved. There's no answer. And and it's just horrible. It's horrible to be in that place. And I've been there. And so I feel for these people. And frankly, when I... Uh, was writing to the families and the cousins who, who, you know, I've gotten to know a bit on the Facebook, the private little site where we talk. Um, you know, I explained this to them and they, they got, we made a connection, you know, me and me and the cousin and the people who are looking, we made this connection. So, you know, it's, it's a real place. Um, but yeah, I'm continuing to work on this case. It's a fascinating case. It's It just has so many unknowns, but the, the people who, the, the girls in their manner of death, it was, it was brutal, it was, it was an execution. No one deserves that end in life. It was terrible. I hate the people who are like that. 
in life. And I, I am more than willing to go all out to try and bring them to justice. I can tell you that I searched very carefully through all the birds available to my hand, all the metadata. And it's tricky to do these searches. The, the satellite flies in a uh, slightly off-centric orbit north-south. And so the the path down below, the image path that it's capturing, can be convoluted. It it can be a pie shaped, a wedge shape. It's it's not always perfect to the terrain, and so you have to be very diligent to to go searching for the right image uptake, and then manage to get it down to like a couple meters in re resolution, where you can you know see what's going on on the ground, make out a tree, for instance. And you can get varying degrees of cloud interference, uh, time of day, shadows, things like that, all count into what you can get to. But uh, the bottom line is on some days, uh, you know, at a site, you can easily tell, oh, that's a white pickup, you know, and see who's there. <laughs> this bird captures the whole surface of the earth every four days. So it's really moving. It's moving out. As I searched through Earth Explorer myself to try and find a satellite image from August 10th to 15th, the only date that populated an image was on the 12th. But not being familiar enough with this software, I wasn't able to download an image. So I asked Mark if he could recreate my search criteria and try to download the image and check its metadata to see if there is in fact an image from the campsite from that date. I'll be happy to. I'll be very happy to. You know, I continue to build my skills in doing this and but but it's not like it's not like an iPhone, you know, you don't just dial it. <laughs> People have all these misconceptions about it. It's not just US birds up there. There's Russian ones and there's Chinese ones. And they're all engaged in photographing the surface of the earth down below. I will go back. I will see what I can do. I will take it apart. I will have more and more look at it. And uh, and I will I will send you what I, what all I have. What more can people do to help? And have you received any images and videos that are of any significance in this case so far? Well, you know, at some point, we've done all that we can do, but I don't think we're there yet because uh, it was the summer in Moab. Now, more people travel north to Canyonlands and the Arches than they do the La Salle Road, but I'm sure there's a small percentage of people that did and, and do. We're hoping that if anybody recorded something while out there that we just haven't reached them yet. So if we can spread the word, we're looking for dash cam footage, drone video, GoPro, off-roading videos, something in that area from uh, anywhere along the, the La Salup Road, north up to Sand Flats Road, south to uh, below uh, Warner Lake Road, then at least we have exhausted all that we can. If we could get just one video, coincidentally, 
the killer may have driven by them. That would be nice. Seems kind of like a, you know, one in a million chance we might have a better chance of winning the lottery. But if that video exists, we'd like to see it. We did get drone footage from the wedding and that's still being analyzed. There was a wedding that occurred on the 14th, but gosh, that's the 14th. If we thought that the murder happened on the, you know, in the evening of the 14th, it might actually be helpful. But if the murder happened where, you know, midnight transitions from the 13th to the 14th and the guy bugged out of town, then that video was shot, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, six hours, later than it would have been helpful. From what I can see so far, just from doing my preliminary review, yeah, it shows off in the distance, the camp, but it doesn't show that I can see any vehicles. So we got to get it clarified and zoomed in to be sure of that. But from what I can tell, there's no vehicles there, which we know is not true. There has to be at least the Kia Sorrento there, because their body in the car wasn't discovered until the 18th. If this actually is of the camp at a timely interval, then it can be helpful. But if it's after the guy's already packed up his stuff and fled the area because he just killed two ladies, then it's not going to help. But it would only be helpful to the degree that it shows that the crime occurred before that drone footage was shot. Because there's been a lot of speculation early on, uh, they went missing on the 13th, they were found on the 18th, so were they killed on the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, or 18th? And, you know, obviously it seems more and more that the murder occurred on shortly after they arrived on the 13th, you know, 1 a.m. of the 14th, because they were scheduled to come back to uh, their friend's house for dinner on the 14th after they moved their camp so we either know uh, they died before dinner or they just canceled dinner and didn't say anything and then it happened after no they were going to come back as long as their intentions were going to be honored their murder likely occurred before the dinner anyway and some people have said to me that they believe that the murder happened in broad daylight because how is someone gonna see somebody to shoot them at night? Well, that's people's eyes adjust at night. They don't know if they were holding their phone or, or holding a flashlight. They don't know what's going on. But in a lot of in a lot of people have also said that they had interviewed people at the wedding and the wedding party heard gunshots, and there's rumor that the video was collected from the from Whispering Oaks and that in that video, you can hear the gunshots and it happened during the day, yada, yada, yada. Well, I hope so, but I, I can't prove or disprove it. It doesn't matter to me. I don't have to be convinced. It's law enforcement who has to build a case to prosecute somebody. So as long as that information's in law enforcement hands, that's the hands it's supposed to be. I can only help them build their case by referring leads or collecting evidence that they can't collect because Oftentimes, the people who call me are the people that don't want to talk to the police. So I give witnesses an alternative to directly dealing with law enforcement. That's kind of the limited role that a private investigator really has. We're not going to solve a case 
instead of the police, we have to actually at some point give it to the police. The other thing that has been somewhat of a mystery to us is the search warrant issued by the Grand County Sheriff's Office in regards to the cell phone found at the crime scene. The way the warrant is worded and the information being requested in the warrant makes it seem as though a phone was found that may belong to someone other than Kylan or Crystal. But we know the girls had a cell phone and Cindy Sue saw a phone leaning up inside their tent. The search warrant also states that a single Samsung cell phone was recovered at the scene and is currently in evidence. This would lead us to believe that the phone does in fact belong to the girls. It's still unclear to us whose phone the search warrant is for, so we thought Jason may be able to clear this up for us and shed some light on the verbiage in the warrant. The cell phone tower dump was the the work of the Grand County Sheriff's Office, and that was a warrant request to Verizon Tower looking for, you know, any cell phone data that connected to the tower within the the window that they were looking for. So what we learned from that warrant was they weren't exactly looking at the date range that we were more interested in because it started, they were looking from the 13th to the 18th. And if the murder happened where midnight uh, at the end of 13th and the beginning of the 14th, they've got a very small chance that they're going to get the cell tower data that's going to show the killer's cell phone because I believe within minutes, if not seconds after the murder, he packed up his camp and left. So all that information from early hours of the 14th through the 18th are needless. It's wasted data. Uh, What they really needed to collect was stuff from like the 10th through the 14th. And we sent that uh, corrective information to Grand County. Not sure if they did a follow-up warrant or maybe they did collect what they needed from the warrant that they did have, but they never shared the results of that. The only way how that, that request would be worthless is if the killer never had a phone at all. So suspects or persons of interest uh, like uh, the the John Freeman cult thing, which is only in theory because again, you know, you can't rule them out, but it seems like the information, seems like uh, people that were interviewed uh, that were familiar with him, you know, place him in Tory with no opportunity to do this crime in Moab, but he had a cell phone. We know that because that's one of the items that uh, they inventoried that he possessed. It was a cell phone, uh, a, a, a solar cell phone, uh, you know, charger and things like that. So if it was him, they also would know that by now as well, because you know, it would have been information available if he took his cell phone to that site. So the only ways to defeat that is, A, not have a phone with you, B, uh, I mean, 
or at all, I don't even own one, or you left it somewhere else, so it's not going to trace your activities. But even that's reckless because, okay, if I have a cell phone, what's my cell phone doing? I'm active on it. If I leave my phone behind, go commit a murder, two hours later, I'm back to my phone, there's going to be that void of activity for that two hours. You're still not getting away with it because your phone is ultimately going to snitch you out because look at me, look at me. I didn't do anything for two hours. And now you got something that circumstantially you can't explain. Where were you during those two hours? Right? Oh, I didn't take it. Oh, you didn't take it. Why? Where'd you go? Cell phones are our biggest enemy. If we're going to commit a crime, don't own a phone. My understanding is about the phone, okay? How cops typically think is like, if I'm gonna investigate this phone, okay? It's because I think it contains information of a crime. Is the victim's phone likely to be evidence of such a crime? No, it's gonna be the criminal's phone that's likely to be the evidence that contains evidence of the crime. So when they're trying to do uh, an investigation about a phone, and they say they found a phone, okay? The phone laying in the, on the ground is, I believe, what the warrant had described. That does not sound like it's describing the same set of facts that Cindy Sue Hunter described about finding a phone inside the tent that was propped up. That would be the girl's phone. That's probably not debatable. It's probably pretty well a foregone conclusion that the phone inside the tent would be the girl's. If there was a phone found out in the dirt and they don't know immediately who the owner is by looking at it or, you know, the content or maybe the type of case on it, because let's be honest about this. Most guy phones would be like a black standard case, whereas if it was a girl's phone or maybe even Kylan and Crystal's phone, there'd be something more personalized about it that would be more obvious that it's their phone, like, you know, something with flowers or something. It's less likely to be a guy's phone. There'll be some kind of characteristic quality or its location that would indicate that they believe that that phone was related to the crime or the criminal. If they use terminology like they found a phone, the word find is pretty self-explanatory. It means it's an item or object discovering a place not likely to be expected. You're finding a phone if it's sitting in the street. It's not so much finding if it's sitting on the counter, right? Because you would kind of expect a phone to be there. It's less likely to be a find, per se. So when they're finding a, a, a phone at the crime scene, I don't think they're referring to Kylan and Crystal's phone. They're more or less figuring it must be related to the criminal or to the crime. Nowadays, with many phones with like facial recognition to unlock, or if they're passcode protected, specifically mentioning iPhones, uh, you can't get into an iPhone if you don't know the passcode or it's not your face. Good luck. And you know, if that's the case, then there's not going to be any clear way to determine what's in there that could be helpful other than going through the carrier and to figure out who's the owner of it. That's probably about the extent that you can get without actually trying to get into the data, you know, 
gaining access to the hard drive and the phone. So if it's password protected, and I know from experience, if you try to access a phone too many times, getting the passcode wrong, it starts to time you time lock it. Like you can't attempt this for 15 minutes, then it's an hour, then it's six hours, then it's locked for the day. Eventually it's a permalock. So could it be that law enforcement have a phone in evidence that belongs to someone other than the girls, possibly the murderer? Or is it that they can't access Kylan and Crystal's phone due to it being locked, and therefore are requesting the cellular data in search of clues as to who could be responsible for their deaths? We also learned of Adam, Crystal's co-worker at McDonald's. The McDonald's staff witnessed some questionable behavior of his. One night when Crystal came into work just to get some food, Adam took notice of her and made some remarks about her being in the back employee area. And Crystal's friends at work were quick to come to her defense, telling him, she's one of us, she works here. If she comes back there, she's part of our team. Then, a few nights later, Adam got into a fight with two other women, Nancy and Lori, because they are lesbians. And apparently, he is homeless, and he quit his job at McDonald's right after the fight with Nancy and Lori, then never came back and picked up his last paycheck. This is all according to other co-workers at McDonald's. They mentioned these incidents on another YouTube interview. We know that Sean Paul and Jason told us last week that Jason Freeman Colt has been cleared in this case by law enforcement. But yet another strange occurrence recently took place, and that was Colt's friend called into the All-American Dream Chaser show, and he said that Colt did borrow a car from someone they know. It was an older model of a silver Mustang or a Chrysler, a four-door. Whether that would put Colt back on the suspect list or not, we don't know. It was a silver, I want to say Mustang. I don't know if it was a Mustang or a Chrysler. People seem to think that they're going to solve this case from the internet. No. The internet was very helpful in the Gabby Petito case because it allowed somebody to see her car and share it with law enforcement, which led law enforcement to, to know where to look at a faster pace than if they would have stumbled across that location all by accident. But that's a missing person case. It's not a murder. You know, there's limitations that we're supposed to respect in a murder case. Jason also appeared on court TV discussing the case where he was asked whether or not Kylan and Crystal were sexually assaulted. And this is what he had to say. Nothing yet other than the fact that they were uh, found uh, disrobed from the waist down. But that may have been their, you know, their sleep attire. Oftentimes people do sleep in just a T-shirt. So whether or not that they were sexually assaulted, clearly the medical examiner would be, you know, exploring that uh, through DNA swap analysis or something like that. But that hasn't been made known to even the family privately. So we don't know that. If you know anyone at all who was visiting Moab August 10th through the 15th, we ask you to urge them, especially friends and family, to share any photos or videos they have of their trip. 
You never know what might be in those images and videos that could be helpful in this case. No matter how insignificant it seems, it is worth showing law enforcement. We're really looking for anybody really that could have been visiting at that time frame. So, you know, gosh, if somebody knows somebody, you know, is a loose screw was visiting in Moab in August 12th of this year, maybe they should call that in just as a, as a conscience check, not necessarily because they find them suspicious. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.